Welcome to the Uncover Up Podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Nathan Radke, and with me today, as always, we have Lee Kunla. Hiya. And Elena Papianis. Hello. And today, uh, we got something a little different for you. Um, this is, we're calling this, what, are, what did a we say? Subcast. This is a subcast. <laughs> it's going to be a sub-episode was too cumbersome. Subisode? Subisode. Just sounds like a bad thing that's happened to your brain. Yeah. I've had, a, I've had a sub-episode. This is one of these things we've been promising forever, and we finally make good on at least one of our promises to make a yeah. shorter episode. Yeah, it's exciting. And what we're doing is, what these subcasts are going to be is, if something comes up in one of the, the main podcasts where we don't have enough time to really flesh it out as much as we want, but we don't think that we're going to get a whole hour out of it, we're going to put together one of these subcasts, and it'll be kind of like a little aside that uh, we examine in more detail one of the things that we talked about in a previous podcast. Now, of course, our last podcast was about MK Ultra, which I think created a lot of potential subcasts. Mm-hmm. And the one that we're going to talk about today is something that we mentioned in passing but deserves far more attention, which is the suspicious window death, the defenestration. Oh, nice. Oh, it's not often you get to use that word. I know. It felt yeah. great and terrible. <laughs> The defenestration of uh, Frank Olson. And so that's what we're going to get into today. Right. So Frank Olson was a biological warfare scientist with the CIA. He was a bacteriologist. And as you said, he somehow this, this suspiciously ended up falling. Well, this is the thing, actually. This is one of the words are important in this case. And when we're, we're talking about this, because when he first was found outside of this window on the ground from like the 10th floor window of the Statler Hotel in New York City. It was November 28th, 1953. His family was told that he either fell or jumped from the window. What's the difference between those two to you? Like when I, if you were told that someone fell or jumped, what would you, what kind of questions might you have? You know, I have to be honest that when I first heard this, I didn't realize how big of a difference there were, Mm -hmm. there was in in those two ideas. But of course, there is a world of difference, right? I mean, there is, did you do it intentionally Mm -hmm. or did it happen to you? Uh, Was it an accident? It really comes down to a question of suicide versus murder, Mm -hmm. for example. It's it's the difference between the active and the passive voice. Mm -hmm. This is a thing that happened or this is a, th- a thing that somebody did. Right. And it also feels like you should be able to answer that question, right? Did somebody fall or did somebody jump? Right. And of course, there's a third option. That's true. And the third option is that this person was thrown. Mm-hmm. Right. Pushed out the window. So why don't we start with what we know and then move towards what we're less certain about. Yeah, so why don't good. we start from the beginning with a quick recap of who this guy was and why he was in that hotel room at all, and what this has to do with our previous podcast on MKUltra and mind control. Right. So he, as I mentioned, worked for the CIA in the technical services staff, I believe. So um, as I mentioned, he dealt with chemicals and bacteria, 
And specifically, what we know, one thing we do know, is that he was working on developing aerosolized anthrax. So essentially, chemicals that could be distributed to, you know, I guess either some someone you're trying to kill, whether it's a big population or, or not, in a way that could be covertly, uh, they could basically covertly be poisoned. So basically, yeah. this was during the Cold War, a time yeah. because of mutually assured destruction, we couldn't go to normal war. So there was all these unconventional kinds of uh, warfare that are, were being investigated. And this guy was a scientist who was looking at some of those potential unconventional uh, warfare methods. Could I ask a question at this point? My understanding was always that the United States did not engage in chemical or biological warfare. Hmm. It's, well, I'm, that, yeah, right exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to say we need to do another sidecast yeah. on Plum Island. Right. So yeah. there, there is some evidence that even though officially they didn't, they mm-hmm. probably maybe kind of did. Yeah. Well, well, they definitely the did. More. Yeah, and under the guise of, well, we just have to know what the Soviets might do, so therefore we have to look into things like smallpox and anthrax because maybe the Soviets were. Okay. And then meanwhile, the Soviets were saying, well, the Americans are probably doing right. this, so we have to look into smallpox and anthrax. So that is to say that we've got a scientist who's working on some super highly classified stuff that maybe nobody should know about, and that's kind of dangerous and scary. Right, and this was sort of unraveled over time, too. Like, I believe at first his family didn't even know the level of involvement that he had. I think they thought he was just like a civilian employee of the government, Mm -hmm. and only later on did they understand how deeply he was embedded in this this chemical program in MKUltra. Um, so he, so there was a, a retreat for him and his staff. So he worked at, um, is it for, is it camp or for Detrick or Dietrich? I want to uh, say Dietrich, but there's only one E. I keep saying Detrick. Okay. Detrick. Uh, I'm going to go with Detrick. D-E-T-R-I-C-K in Maryland. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. <clears throat> uh, anyways, uh, he, they had a, a retreat November 18th, 1953, uh, 10 days before his death. And he they had a retreat at Deep Creek Lake, and all of the staff there, including Frank Olson, were covertly dosed with LSD. Without their knowledge. Yes, without or their, their consent. knowledge or and, their consent. And we talked about this last uh, podcast, right? That this was sort of when MKUltra got off the ground, these kinds of tests were rampant. That yeah. I mean, people were being experimented on inside, outside the agency, civilians, knowingly, unknowingly. I mean... So this was... Which is totally insane, too, after World War II and having right. the Nuremberg trials and and, right. and this being an explicit, a thing that you should explicitly not be doing you should not human be, populations. Yeah, testing weird drugs on human beings without their knowledge. I mean, that just seems so self-evident. Hmm. So, yeah, if you're wondering how it could be that there was a group of CIA uh, operatives having a party and that they were secretly dosing each other with LSD... Go back and listen to the introduction to MKUltra. Okay. Mm-hmm. And Sidney Gottlieb was running, was essentially his boss. And Lashbrook was a deputy. We'll talk about Lashbrook later, I'm sure. Um, and so, yeah, they drank basically booze that was spiked with LSD. It was Quantro, I believe. And we don't exactly know what happened at the retreat. There's a possibility that Olson was then questioned like they were actually testing themselves to see how, if they were security risks. And that's certainly possible. That is definitely one of the things that happened very often during that time period. And something I discovered was that 
earlier on in that year, in the summer, uh, Frank Olsen had taken a couple trips to Europe. I think one was to Sweden, one was to Germany. I can't remember where the other one was. And Sweden, Germany, and Britain. And apparently he confided in a psychiatrist who worked with British intelligence. His name was William Sargent. Uh, there was a secret testing site near Frankfurt, and potentially human subjects were hmm. being tested on there. It wasn't just animals or anything. Well, I mean, we do know that at that time period, uh, the Korean War, they were testing on human beings. They were testing on uh, prisoners of war, mm -hmm. and they were testing on, on potential... On ex-agents, too, um, yeah, or like captured agents. agents, yeah. So um, humans were potentially being tested... Uh, with these kinds of techniques and drugs, basically people who were considered expendable at the time. Um, people who nobody would ask any questions if they never showed up again. Right. People who maybe technically didn't exist if, you know, a government would just sort of say that, mm -hmm. like if it's an, we, we if it's an agent. One. Yeah, we lost that one. We, they weren't ours or whatever. And potentially Sergeant warned British intelligence that Olson was maybe a security risk. And his wife did say that he he that he came back from that trip kind of withdrawn and uh, a bit sort of in his own head. Mm -hmm. So that was earlier that year. I, I think this the is yeah, and this is something that's super important to bear in mind for this whole podcast is that one of the strands that we have to follow is what was happening inside Olson's head, mm -hmm. and it really I think is going to start to seem like he was unhappy with the work that was being done. Yeah, it seemed like he was facing a serious ethical dilemma about what he was involved in and what he was a part of. And after the retreat, so he's dosed with LSD. We don't exactly know what he said or did at this retreat after he was dosed. Although we do know that it was almost like assuredly terrifying for him. Oh, yeah. Because being dosed with LSD against your will is... Mm -hmm. Well, um, without your knowledge. Not I mean, a, it's not a great time. No. And so a week after the retreat, he asked to quit. Olson asked to quit the bio warfare program. And um, like, that's a big deal. It's not like a normal person quitting their job. Mm -hmm. Like his head is filled with top secret information. He knows way too much. He knows way too much. That's a difficult guy to just be like, well, good luck to you. And he also said he was unhappy with his performance at the retreat. And this is also something that he said to his wife. Um, there's accounts of his wife saying that he said something like, I've, I made a terrible mistake or I said too much, those kinds of things. Um, but she never really fully understood what he meant by any of those things. He didn't elaborate. It's like he never really came all the way back from that retreat. Right. Well, this was my question in learning about this was, to what extent was this his own dissatisfaction with the work that he was doing and maybe some ethical dilemmas that he was facing because of the work that he was doing? And to what extent was it the LSD that he took? I think... Hmm. I mean, not to not to expect an answer from anybody, but that was just an open yeah, question yeah. for me. As I was looking through yeah. it, I was like, I, I kept switching back and forth. I was like, yeah, he's on a bad trip and he isn't coming back. Or maybe this was just the last straw and yeah. he's just done with this. And, and the LSD might have exposed him as a risk. And then at that point he realized he was stuck there. Yeah. Right. The other thing that could have happened, and of course this is all speculation because we're trying to figure out what's happening in a guy's head. But it's possible that LSD as a hallucinogen didn't just expose him to the other people, but it's possible that it exposed him to himself. Mm -hmm. It's possible that it caused a tremendous amount of introspection right. and reflection, right, right, right. and he realized, my God, what am I, what am I doing? 
Can I just pause here and note how incredibly stupid it is to take one of the most valued researchers in your department and start experimenting on them? I mean, yeah, what happens if he... Well, you know. I mean, in the CIA's defense, they had a ton of acid, and that acid wasn't going to take itself. <laughs> like, come on. You got to slip it to somebody. I mean, there's the ethical dilemma of dosing people uh, who don't know against their will. That's one thing. Mm-hmm. It's an ethical problem. But I think it's also just bad... Form. Uh, well, just bad spycraft to take valuable assets and expose them to something that could undermine your entire operation. Yeah. I mean, if Olsen well, is like, you know what, this is what we've been doing, yeah. and I'm done with it. We also don't know, though. So at that point, he hadn't asked to resign before the retreat. It was after okay. the, the retreat. But we also don't know, like, maybe he was singled out as being the one. Like, maybe they're all tripping, right. and suddenly everyone's ganging up on him and right. interrogating him. And, like, who knows what kind right. of... What group dynamics yeah, showed up in right? that situation. Sure. Right? And how do you, as somebody who unknowingly is dosed, understand now what's happening in this situation mm-hmm. how to comport yourself mm-hmm. when i mean i think i think after they were drugged they were told that they had been drugged once they I started see. tripping a little bit um but still then it's like then you're just it's out of your control and then he's yeah. probably paranoid about what's going to happen to him but anyway so he went in to resign on the monday he was told to calm down tuesday he went back to insist that his resignation be accepted and basically what the CIA tries to do at this point is kind of frame him as being, as having a nervous breakdown, mm-hmm. as um, becoming paranoid. And then we talked about this a bit last week and it does seem weird. They sent him to a doctor who was an allergist slash pediatrician, mm-hmm. uh, who was their own CIA guy, who was funded by them, who was doing was part of their own testing, drug testing and all those things. And they tried to label him even as a danger to his family, which is how they justified essentially taking him away from his home. And this is when he ends up in New York. So yeah, it was yeah. Abramson, right? The allergist? Yes, I think so. And they, they sent them to Abramson rather than to a psychologist or a psychiatrist yeah. or a therapist because Abramson had been working with LSD and so he had top secret clearance. So right. this wasn't a guy that who was necessarily the most helpful, but it was just the guy that was going to be able to hear the things that Olsen had to say. Right. Okay. And I think they prescribed Nembutal and bourbon for sleep. <laughs> oh, oh boy. Uh, and who knows what else they, I don't know if they would have dosed him with anything as well. And they also took him to John Mulholland. If you, that name sounds familiar, it's because he's a magician. He was a magician, a magician who has, they, the CIA also kind of asked, well, consulted with, for how to like how to do sleight of hand tricks, and I think he wrote a manual for the CIA as well. I, I remember coming across something like that, and so they don't know. Maybe we don't know. Maybe the, uh, he tried to hypnotize Olson. I don't know why mm. they would. Otherwise, they would have brought him to a magician. This guy's brain has been through a lot at this point. It's yeah. been through some anxiety, clearly some self reflection, some lysergic acid diethylamide, some bourbon, and now a magician. Mm-hmm. I mean, can you imagine Lee? If I'm like. Lee, man, I'm worried about you. You you seem stressed out lately. I, I'm going to take you to a magician. Yeah, right. I, I I yeah, I can't see how any of these things are actually supposed to help the situation. And what what strikes me in all of this is why not just let the guy quit? I mean, he's giving you an out, right? If you have a problem with this guy in the agency, and he says, "I'm going to leave," 
can't she, can't we just sign some kind of confidentiality thing, which you probably already assigned, then that's that, and then you go away. Well, there's always a chance that the Soviets can grab him. There's always a chance that maybe he might defect. Yeah. If he's already sort of unhappy, remember this is the 50s where they're rapidly paranoid yeah. about the dangers of communists being everywhere. And right. so if he's saying he's defecting, or if he's saying that he's unhappy, to them that might sound like him saying, I'm unhappy with all of capitalism. Right. Comrade. Or maybe... I'm unhappy with this program and I will expose it. Yeah. I mean, who knows? You're right. Okay. Okay. So um, just to answer your question again, or as well, Lee. So Seymour Hirsch, who we've talked about previously, he's a famous journalist and he's uncovered other sort of major things uh, like Milai from Vietnam. And uh, he, when he's interviewed, basically says that in his understanding, Olson had become what you'd call a malcontent or a dissident hmm. or, or like right. an unwelcome agent yeah. in this whole, in this whole picture. I guess when you've seen too much on the inside, mm -hmm. you just are, yeah, and you are mad about it. Yeah. You really become a security. Well, and in this context of the cold war and paranoia, anything that would have potentially threatened America's success, however defined would have needed to be eliminated. And he are, he actually says that there is or was a procedure or a mechanism to essentially get rid of those malcontents. What is that procedure? Well, he can't <laughs> tell us. And actually there's, oh, it is so fascinating though. Like um, if anyone wants to watch a sort of recreation slash docudrama about this Frank Olson case, uh, you should watch Wormwood. It's by Errol Morris on so Netflix. Good. So good. Basically, like he knows more than he's been able to say publicly. This is Seymour Hirsch. Seymour yeah. Hirsch. He's like, there's one crucial fact that would make the case, but I cannot say it because mm. it would threaten my source. Right. Because mm -hmm. there's ways that people get information. So if he goes and asks somebody for information, what do you know about this? And they go find it. And then he comes out with it. Then that's fingering, like that's that's fingering okay. his source. Because so, sometimes, yeah, the information that's given is so specific. Mm -hmm. Anybody who hears it, it's like we know who told you that, right? And that person is now in trouble. So it's so compelling and fascinating to know that there's something out there right. that would make this definitive, but we just can't know it. As you're talking, Nathan is rifling through a CIA handbook. So this is coming back just to what you were saying about there are ways to yes. get rid of people there are in the so CIA. many yeah, ways to get rid of people so so nathan what is it that you're looking at here what is this a handbook of well the handbook i have here is a, a study of assassination so basically this is a and handbook from the 1950s everybody wants on their bookshelf right yeah, exactly my now, bookshelf is so terrifying. Who, who is this for and by this is for and by the cia and it is a handbook on assassination. And it's a handbook on assassination. And there's a bunch of ways. It goes through, um, for example, I just wanted to read a couple parts. When it gets into firearms, it says some firearms are more useful than others. Uh -huh. uh, the pistol, of course, uh, it's quite, I'm going to quote now here. The handgun is quite inefficient as a weapon of assassination, as it is often used partly because it is readily available and can be concealed on the person, and partly because its limitations are not widely appreciated. Because a pistol, I mean, you don't have a lot, you can't aim that well with it, it doesn't have a lot of stopping power. Okay. On the other hand, the submachine gun oh my. is occasionally useful in assassination. Unlike the rifle machine gun, this is a short-range weapon, and since it fires pistol ammunition, much less powerful. Now, it says the machine gun is not necessarily that useful for uh, assassinations. Uh, another quote. 
the area fire capacity of the machine gun should not be used to search out a concealed subject. This was tried with predictable lack of success on Trotsky. So if you're looking for somebody, don't try to flush them out with a machine gun. No, right. And um, apparently a hammer, axe, wrench, screwdriver, fire poker, kitchen knife, lampstand, or anything hard, heavy, and handy will suffice. These sure. kinds of improvised weapons that are just readily available and you can easily, they easily blend into whatever environment it is that you're performing this assassination. Interesting. Yeah. But so, Elena, what about if you're trying to kill a guy, but you don't want it to look like he got killed? What about secret assassinations? Are there the instructions for that? The contrived accident? Are you referring to the contrived accident? Yeah, I think if you look at subsection two yes. of the manual titled Accidents. For secret assassination, either simple or chase, the contrived accident is the most effective technique. The most efficient accident in simple assassination is a fall of 75 feet or more onto a hard surface. It goes on later to say in chase cases, chase case basically means someone who's unaware, I believe, that it's happening to yeah. them. It will usually be necessary to stun or drug the subject before dropping him. And then later on, they mention... When it comes to these blunt weapons and their use, blows should be directed to the temple, the area just below and behind the ear. And the reason I point out these ones in particular is because they directly are parallel to the evidence of what could have happened to Frank Olson. So first of all, according to the official story, he jumped or fell, but let's go with jumped. If he jumped, he would have had to take a running start through this tiny New York hotel room leap over a radiator, um, propel himself through a window with blinds closed. A closed window. Closed window. Closed hotel window. And so the first autopsy said that there were cuts and abrasions that were consistent with that story. In 1994, I believe, his body was... 1993, his body was exhumed and re retested and uh, apparently it was still in reasonably good shape mm -hmm. so it wasn't like this was a desiccated corpse that they couldn't tell anything from right. it was still in good enough shape and they did not find those cuts and abrasions that were initially referred to and what they did find was a large hematoma uh, on the left side of his head which they could not have happened after the fall he actually ended up landing on his back outside on the on the floor and uh i think a contusion or some something on his chest too as though he had a blow to his chest so just to go back, we started, you asked about the difference between jumping or falling. So <laughs> the contention is, if he had jumped, I mean, if, if, if I were to imagine a suicide out of a hotel window, I, I would imagine you would open the window mm -hmm. and get out mm -hmm. and then jump. Mm -hmm. But the way that the CIA is construing this suicide is that the window was closed, the blinds were closed, and he ran from one end of the... Uh, hotel room jumped over the radiator and threw a closed window in order to commit suicide right. is that what they're claiming basically yeah and there was another guy in the yes. room at the time lashbrook uh -huh. right so let's, who let's get is in, let's lashbrook. get into this guy so he was a deputy to gottlieb he was um so cia yeah cia and he was basically like his minder by the sounds of it like he okay. was he was with him throughout those few days when he was sort of being transferred back and forth between doctors and taking him to magicians yeah like <laughs> i think they went to allergists yeah i think they went to a play even or like they'd hang out at the hotel bar together and stuff um and lashbrook when the hotel manager armand pastori found frank olson uh, on the ground at two in the morning and oh, Frank Olson was still alive. 
for oh a few my seconds. God, and I he didn't tried to mum he tried to mumble something oh. to Armand uh, to Armand and oh, he that's tragic. Yeah, before he passed away. And so then the hotel manager went up to check out the room and they found Lashbrook basically sitting like on the toilet or something with his head in his hands. I guess claiming he had been in there when Frank did this. I see. So now, yeah. Now that gives I think brings us to the phone call. Yes. So yeah, because we, we briefly talked about mm-hmm. this in the MK Ultra episode, but I think it's worth talking about again. Yeah, so Armand then went to ask the hotel operator had there been any calls. There were two calls placed. One, we don't know what was said. The second one, Lashbrook phoned out and said, he's gone. And the person on the other end said, that's too bad. Hmm. Now, here's the thing about that conversation. If I jumped out the window and then Lee called somebody... Lee wouldn't just say, he's gone. Mm-hmm. That's something you say when the other person is expecting totally. the person to be gone and you're yeah. confirming it. Mm-hmm. If right. it's new, an original news you're getting, that's a pretty half-assed way to say it. Yeah. It doesn't say anything. Well, and if you said, he's gone, be like, who's gone? Yeah, what do you mean, gone? gone? He's, he's gone where? What <laughs> gone are you talking where? about? Like, yeah. to who's another this? city? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's totally bizarre. So, I mean, but also sort of confirming of what our theory might end up being about what happened to Frank Olson? So, yeah, let's get to that then. The uh, Well, first of all, the official explanation from the CIA for 20 years was that he was just, he got depressed and and, and killed himself and took his own life. Right, or and had a bad trip. Right? Or, or, oh, wait, no, that comes later. That comes later. That the comes original later. story is original. just, you know, he was sad and he took his own life. At this right. point, his family doesn't know anything about the LSD. They okay. don't know anything about all of this, like, right. bourbon magic experiment stuff. And that's what his family has to deal with for 20 years. 20 years. Then, when, the, uh, when Hirsch blows open the MK Ultra stuff, and then there is a committee formed by Vice President Rockefeller. The Rockefeller Commission. The Rockefeller yeah. Commission, yeah. And they're watching the news, and they hear a story about how a CIA man had been given acid at a party and then had fallen out of a window. And his family realizes... That's him. That's yeah. dad. Because yeah. how many in that time period... How many CIA guys have fallen out of windows in New York? Mysteriously fall out a window in a a New York hotel room. And so then they go to the government and they're like, this is, you've been clearly lying to us all this time. And so they did get an apology organized by Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld. Quality guys. Quality guys. I wonder what they're going to get up to Uh, in the future. (laughs) I see big things. And so in 1975, they did get an apology from President Gerald Ford at the time. But the question is... Do they have the real story still? Right. What is this apology hiding? What is it trying to prevent them from looking further into? And if this is the story you can sort of admit to, what are you covering up? What are you covering that up with that's worse? Yeah, so that is... That, I think, is a really strong point that um, Frank Olson's son, Eric Olson, makes in the Wormwood documentary that you cited earlier. And one that... I found that so interesting, um, especially given also our last podcast on MKUltra, the idea that often a conspiracy theory is a cover for something yet more nefarious, Mm -hmm. sinister, sinister, something that you really don't want people to talk about. And I'm going to throw out that we are one day, I promise, going to talk about Area 51 and the aliens. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. For sure. That's, because, a, that's a big one. Because mm-hmm. that's That'll how be that, I, I would claim, that's how that worked a lot, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but the idea, right, that a conspiracy theory covers up something, something yet worse. worse. Yeah. And so 
Elena, I think you put your finger right on it. What? And, uh, and Eric Olson asked this question too. If the LSD story was mm-hmm. the cover... What was really going yeah, on? Yeah, how bad must the actual story be? Yeah. Right, and Seymour Hersh actually said at the time when he met the family, he said, this must be the most uncurious family in the United States. I can't believe you fell for that story for 22 years. Yeah, he didn't say hi. No, he no, he blew that. in the room and just said that with his arms probably flailing in the air. Yeah, and I guarantee you he was smoking a cigarette. I was just thinking yeah. that, yes. And he, his hair was all ruffled. Yeah. <laughs> 70s investigative journalism, I love it. So then... They're told that he just has taken his own life because he's depressed. 20 years later in 1975, they're told, well, okay, we did ex- experiment on him with acid without him knowing, and that could have contributed to it. Might have had a bad trip. Do we believe that explanation? I could buy it. I could. Mm-hmm. I'm, I, I, I'm not convinced. Mm-hmm. Um. <laughs> I'm not convinced in part because of who we're dealing with, mm-hmm. uh, the CIA. I'm not convinced because the, you know, the if you lie to me once or twice, what makes me think the third time is going to be the truth? So they don't have a very convincing track record. Certainly not in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And also just with on this case particularly, right? Mm-hmm. On this case, they're, they lied, lied, lied some more. So um, I think... I think there is something else going on, but I don't have enough to prove it. So this is why I'm being very cagey about it. I, I mm. would say, personally, I'm not convinced. If I had to put money on it, if I had to convict somebody in a court of law where things would mm-hmm. actually matter, I'm not. I don't think I could do it. You're so diligently. Yeah, <laughs> so wonderful. This is this is Courtney Love and Kurt Cobain all over again. Yeah. Is what this is. <laughs> Well, what like, about say, you Come on, Lee, loosen up. Ooh. No, we're kidding. Elena, this um, is, you did the deepest dive into this. Okay, what so, do you think? Well, another point I wanted to bring up that I forgot earlier is, so Eric Olson, who you mentioned, he finally went to this room, 1018A at the Statler Hotel in New York City, to see for himself because he was so rightly obsessed with his father's death. And um, he said he had a re- basically a revelation when he was in the room that his father could not, in that small hotel room, there's no way his father could have run and gathered enough momentum to leap over this radiator. The sill was high, the windows closed, the blinds are closed. Just physically, it seemed like an impossibility. I don't know if that is is any more helpful for you, but I, I think, I feel like there is evidence that points to the fact that mm. he was he was offed. So your 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 contention is the CIA killed Frank Olson because he was a problem. I'm leaning towards that. Yeah, me yeah. too, yeah. for sure. Well, I mean, look at Nathan. if we break it down into the premises, we have the coroner's report from mm-hmm. 1993 Here's that seems logic to, training coming yeah. to the fore. <laughs> seems to suggest that he was hit in the head before he died. Yes. Now, of course, we're we're talking about a body who obviously had been dead for several decades and coroner reports are nearly as clean and cut as we see on TV. At the same time, that is certainly evidence. We have the evidence of the room itself. Uh, We have that phone call. There is a lot of circumstantial Mm -hmm. evidence that to me, I'm definitely, I agree. I lean towards the fact that this was maybe actually a killing rather than either an accident or a suicide. Yeah. But there is one piece of evidence that 
I have not been able to track down. We tracked down the assassinate the assassination manual yesterday. Mm-hmm. Elena and I uh, have offices right beside each other, and we were frantically like combing through CIA <laughs> yeah. files and printing stuff off on our work printer. I'd love to see what your colleagues think of you when they find all the CIA assassination manuals. I left mine on my screen office. when I went to class. I just left <laughs> mine on my screen. Yeah, I was of like, course. have a look. Yeah, sure. Yeah. We're not, we're not uh, hiding it. Yeah. I also don't print it from home, though, because I sort of am hiding it. <laughs> but there is one piece of evidence that I really want to track down, and I'll keep working on it. And that is uh, investigative journalist... Uh, Hank Alberelli, who wrote the book A Terrible Mistake, uh, which I think we've all read at this point. It's like a 600-page tome. It's extremely well-researched. It's what Wormwood was based on. Mm-hmm. Well, he references at one point a CIA file that he has come across, but that we haven't been able to find yet. And I'll just read the sort of the subject subject heading of this of this memo regarding... Pont-Saint-Esprit and F. Olson files. SO span France operation file inclusive Olson. Intel files, hand copy to Bellin, tell him to see to it that these are buried. Now, that's sort of typical CIA talk, the way that their memos always read. It's always sort of a word jumble. But what that says to me, if this is legitimate, if this really is a CIA file, then it raises to me what I consider a chilling possibility the fact that Pont-Saint-Esprit and F. Olson are referenced together mm-hmm. raises the possibility, two awful possibilities. One, that Pont-Saint-Esprit, which we will do an episode on, which was a French town that literally went crazy in 1951, which resulted in a lot of people dying. The town just spontaneously developed some kind of awful, awful mental illness that then went away. Where in France is it? Uh, it's sort of in the south. It's like, it's not all the way in the south coast, but okay. it's it's pretty far south of Paris. And, and what year was this in? 1951. Okay. I think it's on the coast, isn't it? Uh, it's near, yeah, it's it's not in like that kind of south of France kind of area that yeah. we see in movies, but it's it's in the south of France. Okay, so I got it here on a map now. This, okay. If this is real, then it suggests to me that one, that event that happened in Pont Saint-Esprit that we will do a podcast on was the result of potentially a CIA experiment. Mm. And two, Frank Olson may have been involved with it. Mm -hmm. And that could have been the thing that triggered both his uh, desire to leave the agency, his depression, his anxiety, and potentially his possible murder. Yeah, and I don't know what other trips he would have been involved in. And the other is I only know 1953, so that would be a curious thing to look into as well. Yeah, when you were talking about how he had been to yeah, Europe, Sweden I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. Oh, that's not quite that's yeah. not quite the timeline. Although that also could have been some terrible, awful after, things. Yeah. So we'll keep looking for that file. And if I can find it and we decide this is legitimate, mm-hmm. then I think we have figured out what happened. Wow. Now, Hirsch, so in talking about this case... And in people like Eric Olson's desire to want some sort of definitive answer, Hirsch's response was this. It's wonderful to not have an ending. Hmm. Basically saying you're wrong to want uh, this sort of tidied up with a nice little bow on it. How do you guys feel about that? I mean, that's the prerogative of a journalist in a way. You know, he's in... He, I think, and maybe I'm being unfair, but is approaching this sort of as a story... I was really struck watching Wormwood by what this meant for Frank Olson's son, 
Eric Olson and how it just ruined his life. I mean, just it, it became his life. It became mm-hmm. his yeah. life. And it wasn't that his and this is my take on it. It wasn't that his dad died. It was that he never got to know how or why. And I feel like it's terribly cruel to deny Eric Olson the opportunity yeah. to close this up. But he also does say, Hirsch does say, Eric knows, like Eric mm. knows what happened mm. at this point. He's like figured enough out that I think he knows. But what's interesting too about Eric, I think it was nine. He was nine maybe when his dad died. Yeah. Mm. And basically his life crumbled and what he became involved in is this um, sort of therapeutic method of collaging. Mm-hmm. And so that's literally him trying to piece these things together, to right. piece this puzzle together that was his dad's death, mm. which is just fascinating too. Like mm-hmm. you said, how it just took over his existence. And so sad. Yeah, so yeah. sad. And, and so human. Yeah. Oh, now we're sad. Now we're sad. Oh. Uh. <laughs> Thank you.